must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. My name is Stephanie Wyrock, and I'm one of your co-hosts, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Brandon Poen. And today, our guest is Carol Recker-Hughes, who is the Associate Professor and Director of Clinical Education in in the Physical Therapy Education Program at SUNY Upstate Medical University. Uh, She's joining us today to kind of dive into SUNY's usage of simulation in entry-level DPT education. Brandon and I um, attended the uh, ELC conference last year, and this was a topic that was talked about a lot at the Education Leadership Conference. And we really wanted to kind of delve into this topic because this is a hot issue in PT education. So, uh, Carol, welcome to our podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Um, I have uh, been a physical therapist for 40 years. And uh, I went back and got my doctorate in education after entering the PT faculty at SUNY Upstate uh, about 20 years ago. Um, and the area of education uh, research interest that I decided to pursue uh, when I went back to school uh, was simulation and education. And um, so I am currently, again, DCE, Director of Clin Ed at Upstate, um, been in that role for a number of years, and um, have been quite involved in simulation now for going on 15 years. And it's been really an, an honor and uh, really an exciting time to be involved in education and in simulation. Um, and uh, most recently, I've taken on a leadership role in the interprofessional education program at the medical university and am um, now having the opportunity to become involved in interprofessional work, including interprofessional simulations. Well, I love it, Carol. And it was really good, you know, to connect at ELC because actually, ironically, we were actually in the same exact uh, um, session, shall we say, that was actually covering simulation, more so going through UAB's program. And then you, of course, mentioning your input, I was like, oh, I didn't know there were others that were doing it to this level. So that's awesome. And you know, of course, you had mentioned, you know, a little bit more about your experience and kind of how, you know, how long the program has had simulation. But 
I'm always curious because I've always am interested in how each program kind of started off with simulation, kind of how they got that off the ground. So with you, of course, being so involved in SUNY's simulation program, let's dive a little bit more into that initially to kind of get a little bit of context. So what's the story with how and why like you guys started your simulation program? Like what were some of those deciding factors and kind of how it got off the ground? Yeah, well, so um, as a relatively new faculty member and director of clinical education, um, I realized in conjunction with all of the faculty that, you know, we had these students who would do really well in the classroom and who we anticipated would do equally well in the clinic. And we started recognizing that academic performance on written exams and practicals were not necessarily excellent predictors of performance in the clinic. And uh, we recognized that there was something that wasn't clicking in that students, some students really struggled to integrate information across courses and then apply it real time in the clinic. And I think for myself and others, uh, simulation was just becoming a topic. And we thought, hey, maybe this is one way to create an authentic clinical experience in a safe place um, to better assess and prepare students for what they're going to experience in the clinic. Well, I think it's really good that you guys kind of had that learning moment where you kind of had really like really looked at the students and really were kind of doing some of that research and really seeing that you know, academic performance isn't always the exact same or doesn't have the exact same carrier ever always into clinical performance and kind of looking at different avenues to try to help um, bridge that gap, shall we say. Um, but of course, I'm curious because, I mean, I don't have much university experience, so I, I welcome your perspective on this. But from what I can encounter, from what I've heard from others in a university setting is that there can be a lot of barriers and things that have to be kind of overcome to get something like this officially off the ground with support of the program, with support of the university. Um, so what exactly, like, what was that startup process specifically like from a logistics standpoint for actually like developing and implementing this thing? Cause I'm sure it was not an easy task and it took some time. Um, no, and it actually has developed organically over a number of years. It's uh, kind of a trial and error process. <laughs> it's not something that, you know, we, we went out and said, uh, let's take this, <laughs> this thing and try it out and it and it's works perfectly. It, it really evolved over time. So um, we started by learning as much as we could from other programs. And um, we just started having discussions across faculty. Pros and cons. Why would we want to do this? You know, why not? And um, there were some faculty who hopped right on board, you know, people who are innovators, people who want to try new things. Other faculty thought, how's this going to impact my workload? Is this going to just be more that I need to do? Um, and what, what are the outcomes of this? I mean, are, is it really going to result in increased student readiness? Um, are we going to have better results on the board exams? <laughs> you know, what does this mean? Um, and so, again, it evolved over time with lots of discussions with faculty, and we really needed to get administration's buy-in as well. Um, I should probably mention to you that we started this super low-tech so it was a video camera 
and a standardized patient and a clinical instructor sitting side by side and, um, you know, just really low tech, bare bones. <laughs> and, uh, and it was reasonably successful. And it grew from there because we had a very positive response from the students and from the faculty who were involved. Wow, that sounds like, uh, you know, you guys did a, put a lot of work in, but you also took a lot of feedback to really develop this program. What were some of the barriers or requirements that you were forced to uh, embrace or overcome um, in order to make this program successful? Yeah, so I think, I think the greatest barrier was just getting the faculty and administration buy-in, honestly. Um, because to do this well, and I think what really makes it meaningful, is every single faculty member in our department, and there are 13 of us, are dedicated to this process in some way or another. So by engaging all of the faculty in development of cases, in implementation of the exam, in analysis of student performance, it helps to bring, every, you know, it helps to make the assessment tool meaningful because you're not assessing a single course, you're assessing an entire curriculum. <laughs> and. Um, and honestly, what happened is faculty started getting really curious about student performance. And gee, I wonder if the students in my orthopedic course are going to demonstrate those orthopedic skills real time as I taught them in the classroom. Um, so, um, so, so that was a barrier. But once we, again, once we started doing it, the faculty wanted to become more involved. Um, and because the student feedback was positive initially they were they were terrified of doing going through this but our program has emphasized a formative assessment so the intent behind our simulations are to inform the students of their gaps and their strengths and not to be punitive so it's very proactive it's kind of what do you need to know about where you're at in terms of your own self-assessment before you go out into the clinic? So again, initially they were really nervous about having to be recorded and having faculty watch them. And over time they really said, whoa, this is tremendous because you're giving me a sense of what the clinic will be like. And I'm understanding that you're trying to help me figure out where I'm truly at and what I need to focus on in the clinic. The other thing I really want to mention is over time, this has changed substantively and has grown to include clinicians. So students are not only assessed by academic faculty, they're assessed by clinicians who are a part of the process. And we engage about 40 clinicians each year. <laughs> in doing this and they adore being part of the faculty they feel valued and students instead of just getting feedback from a faculty member get feedback face to face from a clinician immediately following the assessment 
and they really listen <laughs> to what the clinician has to say. So that has been a huge piece of getting buy-in, not only from the students, but now from our clinical partners as well. How did you, you know, you mentioned a lot that the, a lot of the bare, big barrier was getting people to buy into this. How did you pitch this to the university board, the program director, the clinicians, all the stakeholders that were involved? How did you end up pitching it to everybody? Yeah, so it was really, um, we pitched it uh, primarily by um, noting that healthcare programs that had simulation programs were able to demonstrate that students, you know, a, a tool to assess student readiness for the clinic. So if we can identify that a student uh, is not ready for the clinic before they go, then we can be proactive and remediate before they get there. Um, and that's very cost and time effective because if you can remediate a student before they get to the clinic, they're more likely to be successful. And uh, that really spoke to all of the parties. We also um, focused on its ability to be a curriculum assessment and feedback tool and on how it would help us to grow our partnership with clinics by engaging them. So over time, that was a big, big piece of this. Well, I think that's really insightful, Carol, because I mean, I think it's really good that you kind of bring up that strategy. And apart from, because I know there might be other faculty members or even program directors of PT programs or even other healthcare providers for that matter who might be listening, and they're kind of in a similar boat. They're like, I don't know how to really bring this up effectively for my institution or for my team. Um, but apart from the great points and tips that you had just mentioned earlier that you guys did at SUNY's program, are there any other things you would recommend or tips that you would kind of give to maybe other faculty members when it comes to uh, pitching the higher ups to make something like this happen? You know, it, you know, what's really fascinating is um, we have found that people who come in for their interviews for the program have heard about the fact that we do this, and it's become a real marketing tool. So we actually have people come to our program because they know that we're doing simulations. And um, I should mention that over the past 10 years, we have... Um, the opportunity to use a, a simulation center at Upstate. Um, and so, uh, you know, these folks come in and they see the simulation center and they hear about it from the current students. And uh, so, so that's another huge piece is that marketing. Um, and then again, the professional development piece for the clinical instructors is significant because since we started including the clinical instructors in this program, we've noticed that the students are having, um, they're giving us better feedback on the teaching that they're getting in the clinic. And there's more continuity between our expectations and the clinic's expectations. So we have more clinical sites to place our students at, which is another huge selling point. Yeah, I mean, I, I love those last points you brought up as well, because I think when you presented it that way, that's definitely a very strong argument and some really solid points for at least other um, faculty members or teams, you know, to really consider, because I think that's really solid. And, you know, Carol, I recognize that some people listening may not know some of the exact specifics on specifically how um, SUNY's simulation program operates and kind of looking, you kind of touched on it a little bit briefly, but in terms of like, 
when it's in the curriculum, the structure, and just kind of a little bit more of those fine details just to kind of get an overview of kind of the specifics of kind of what you guys do? We run two extended simulations, one at the end of the first year of the program before the first clinical, one at the end of the second year of the program before the second clinical. And our first year clinical is really focused on communication skills and core PT skills, foundational skills, goniometry, muscle testing, teaching a patient how to do an exercise. Um, and um, the second year exam is more complex and delves more into clinical reasoning, the ability to, to engage in clinical reasoning and make decisions on the fly with complex rehab patients. Um, and that ties to our curriculum and to the coursework. And so um, each of those exams um, the students participate for about an hour and a half. <laughs> they are individually, um, they individually meet with a student for up to 45 minutes in uh, a simulated encounter where they move through all components of an initial exam, including patient instruction and education. And then they step into another room where they immediately meet with a clinical instructor for um, about 20 minutes to talk about how they did real time in a back and forth dialogue that is very relaxed, but uh, on point. And the CI includes a series of clinical reasoning questions um, in both of those exams. And then um, afterwards, the uh, students uh, reflect on in the experience, they provide um, they complete a self-assessment. They provide feedback on the process and on the CI encounter. And uh, about a week later, we do whole class debriefing with faculty. And we have the students watch their videos, review the feedback that they've received. And uh, they use all of that feedback to determine how to prepare for their upcoming clinical. I love it. I love how you guys are kind are integrating clinical education and giving giving students a look at what a day in the clinic is going to be like and facilitating that expectation that the, that the clinical instructor and the student are going to be providing feedback for each other to enhance learning. I really think that's very cool. How do you guys track outcomes for this program? Are you guys um, keeping track of how students are doing in the clinic? Have you noticed improvements in CPI scores? What types of outcomes are, um, are you interested in or have you tracked so far? Well, you know, this is a really interesting question <laughs> um, because if we're successful, the students who don't do very well on these assessments and undergo remediation and support before they get to the clinic, they're all going to do well, right? So, um, so it's interesting because some of the students who we pick up um, as being very strong on this exam may not be the strongest in the clinic and vice versa. Some of the students who don't do well on this assessment do really well in the clinic. And so then we don't know <laughs> whether it's because they had a better sense of where they were at and they went in better prepared because of this. We'd like to think that's the case, but it's kind of tough to prove. So I think what we can say is we are rarely, if ever, surprised 
by a student's performance in the clinic. So if a student struggles, 99% of the time, the student has already heard it before, and so have we. <laughs> and it makes it a whole lot easier to get on a plan um, because the student generally owns that. And we can move right to um, a plan of action rather than um, having the student kind of <laughs> hear it for the first time. Um, I'll say that consistently, um, and, and it actually in preparation for this, I was thinking about it, and in preparation for the upcoming um, ELC, we were looking at CPI scores. And what I can tell you is that students consistently at midterm score well above what is expected for their performance by the end of the clinical in the skills that are sometimes referred to as soft skills um, for clinic one. So they, they do re they score off the charts in professional behaviors, accountability, communication, professional development, and perhaps there's a correlation between that and the ISPE. We haven't yet um, gone to the APTA and said, gee, how do our scores compare to the scores across the nation? Um, but that, I think, would be a next step. Have you guys noticed any difference in the qualitative data that's um, written on the CPI? Do you feel like the students are better, are giving themselves a better assessment of where they're at qualitatively? Generally speaking, yes, I do. They are very receptive to feedback, and that's a theme gee, you know, the, the, your students really seem to own where they're at. They are um, very willing to accept feedback. And, and what's interesting is um, they take responsibility for their own learning. What's interesting is that the students call us frequently if they're not having a good clinical experience. They reach out to us. And they have an expectation, I think, because of the CI encounters during the ISPE, of what a CI student interaction should be like. And so um, it's intriguing. Um, I'm not sure if I directly answered your question, but, um, but you're making me think about um, the ramifications uh, on the students and how this experience seems to impact um, expectations they have for their experience in the clinic and for the CI student discussion. Yeah, I think that that's what I find most interesting about this is that, you know, as somebody, I'm a clinical instructor and I know Brandon has been a clinical instructor in the past as well. And one of the things that I try to stress in my students is making sure that they are being very reflective in their performance, making sure that they understand and can give a good self-assessment of themselves. Yes. And I think that that's something that I would be interested in examining. Um, does the, do these simulations help students see their performance and assess it a lot better so that when they're interacting with their clinical instructor, the feedback between the two can be more open and honest versus, you know, guarded and, um, more like superior versus uh, subordinate. 
Yeah. And, and Steph, if I may add one, I think I completely concur. I'll, I'll add one other point to that, that I've kind of noticed as well, not even just in myself, but in the brief number of students that I have had is that I, I think from what I can gather is sometimes when they have that exposure and they know what to expect and they've kind of been in it and they know it and they feel more comfortable with it and you talk with them and they get more comfortable with you, you're able to progress into so much further than you would, you would be before if you had to just get them accommodated to the place and just knowing what to expect. And so I feel like in some ways it kind of just gets more exposure. So therefore there's less apprehension and then, you know, people feel more confident naturally. So that's just my added two cents. I'll say to that one. I don't know if that's what you guys think as well. Yeah, no, I would agree. And when students are made to feel safe about voicing where they're at, um, you, you're going to expedite where you can go in the clinic, as you just said, Brandon, absolutely. And you know, Carol, I'm being curious because I'm sure, like you had said, the program earlier on is always evolving. Um, what do you think, what are you guys thinking about in terms of what's coming down the pipeline when it comes to um, modifications or future directions for your guys' simulation program? Well, we're kind of taking, um, another road <laughs> and and so this will continue and and what is very cool is that um, the administration has completely um, is in full support of this program there's no chance it's going anywhere it's now built into the curriculum it's built into the budget um, at the highest level so the Dean is actually covering the costs for this program um, and so um, now we are more now we're focusing on in addition to these programs um, developing interprofessional and acute care simulations so uh, we're very fortunate to have um, an acute care simulation facility that has just been built uh, we are currently uh, as a PT program piloting Actually, this week, as a matter of fact, we just did our first one a couple days ago. Um, acute care simulations, again, involving clinical instructors. But this time, instead of standardized patients, we're bringing in simulated patients or people from the clinic who are reliving their acute care experiences. We're hooking them up to lines and tubes. They're going right back to their experience. Um, and these are people with traumatic brain injury, multiple amputations, um, you know, uh, the gamut of uh, total lung and heart transplants, um, people of all ages, all ethnicities. And they actually put on gowns and they get back into the bed and they go back to their acute care experience of a year ago or six months ago. Um, and uh, this gives students an opportunity who have maybe only been in outpatient clinicals. <laughs> this happens during the third year of the program um, to have more practice in acute care situations. And these are purely formative. Um, following these acute care simulations, the patients actually tell the students directly real time what worked for them, what suggestions they have for them. I don't want to, I don't want to go on too much, but uh, that's, that's really where we're headed. All right. Well, I think that's, it's really interesting as you kind of bring up that avenue of, you know, interprofessional education and kind of getting that diverse perspective in there and that diverse environment. I think that's really solid plan. And with that, and I'm curious because I recognize that there might be some programs that are either in the development phase with kind of setting up simulations or kind of brainstorming 
um, how to actually set this up for their particular curriculum and their program. So depending on, of course, I know it's going to vary on the program. There's a lot of things, but generally speaking, what advice would you give to programs to really have a best success at incorporating simulations and kind of going through um, some of the do's and don'ts that you guys kind of learn throughout your journey? Yeah, so it's a great time to enter simulation because so many people have done it. And so my first suggestion would be, um, you know, reach out to all of those people who are doing simulations. And so there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Um, contact me, contact all of those folks out in the field who have been doing simulation for a while. Uh, what I would love to see is a data bank where we can store all of our cases, we can store our formats, we can share our ideas with one another. Um, and, and I reached out to programs when we got started and making site visits to those places, watching what they do, you know, um, and then attending some simulation conferences. It's just a tremendous thing to do. So um, there's an organization called ASPE, uh, Association for Standardized Patient Education. And there's another one, the SSIH, the Society for Simulation in Healthcare. Um, these are wonderful um, opportunities to uh, become members of their organization, go to their conferences, grab their journals, um, reach out to experts. So that's, that's where I would begin. And I would say, make sure that your simulations are tied to your courses. They're not an add-on. Um, and, and really find ways to engage all of your faculty in the planning and in the implementation. Uh, because that's what's going to make it really valuable to the students and to the program. Yeah, I think that that's good advice, Carol. Um, I know that this is something that's becoming more popular in DPT education. I know that medicine uses simulations. So, you know, if we can get that, that um, database, maybe we can standardize this across programs. I know that that's something that we're always interested in doing. We want to make a little bit of a uh, pitch for your presentation that's coming up at this year's ELC. It's called Ready or Not Using Simulation to Assess Core Competencies Prior to the First Clinical Experience. Can you give us a brief preview of this talk and maybe tell us when it is and if you know the room too so that way our listeners can come to it? This discussion is taking place on Saturday morning at some point at ELC, and uh, we are, my colleagues and myself, and, and I'm excited to be co-presenting with um, a student in the DPT program, um, with a fellow DCE, and with a site coordinator for clinical education for Upstate. So we're representing a variety of stakeholders. And there's been some really exciting things coming down the pike in education with regard to standardization. And so at the moment, um, 
there is no standard framework for what students should look like before they go out onto clinic one. And a group of researchers uh, in the past year, led by Jean Timmerberg, um, other authors were Dole and Silberman, and colleagues, they were a task force, uh, and they were asked to develop a Delphi study to determine what clinicians and academicians and students uh, thought about what students should look like on their first clinical experience. And they did a Delphi study and they identified a list of knowledge, skills, and attitudes that was published um, in a 2019 uh, physical therapy education journal issue. And we read that and we um, certainly think it's very important to identify some common standards as to what students should look like before they get to clinic one. And we were curious to investigate whether or not our first year simulation experience um, would address those standards. And so the presentation is really um, our analysis of a comparison of how our simulation um, rubrics and activities um, in one fell swoop help assess students' readiness for the clinic. And um, we're going to share our tools, we're going to share resources, we're going to share some videos, or it's going to be a very active presentation. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to discussion with, um, especially clinicians, we hope are at that presentation. So that's kind of um, a little snippet of it, the presentation and we look forward to um, welcoming folks to join us. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I think it's really fascinating that you brought up the work from, you know, Dr. Jean Timmerberg. I know she was also involved, of course, with, you know, um, the ACAP panel for that same topic that you had kind of just touched base on. And actually, we interviewed her um, not too long ago on that more in depth. So I know if listeners maybe aren't aware of that um, specific avenue that Carol was referring to, um, feel free to either reference this episode or if you want, I can post the link to uh, her research and that study in the show notes here if you want to kind of dive in a little bit more to that because I think that is certainly a very um, interesting method and thing that they did and I think it's really worth highlighting and bringing up because I think it is important that we look at that. Um, and Carol, you know, I got to ask, our, our big finale question is kind of one that we ask everyone at the end and this does by no means have to attain anything we've talked about tonight. This can be anything, whether it be entry-level, post-professional level. The sky is the limit on this last question. So the question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, um, whether that be physical therapy or otherwise, which aspect would you change and how would you change it? This is a tough one, Brandon. <laughs> I would like to see our clinical faculty and our clinical sites uh, supported and uh, in a demonstrable way uh, valued uh, by the academy for the work they do. Because my belief is that the student learning really occurs in the clinic. <laughs> and, um, and so that means resources need to be invested in professional development of CIs, in um, supporting CIs when they have challenges, in making sure that they have opportunities to engage in uh, 
the academic education program when they want to. Um, and I would really like to see a whole culture shift occur such that all PTs are engaged in clinical education because they realize the value in doing so. That's a really good point because that's something that certainly has been brought up um, a few times. I mean, the clinical education, the topic has been brought up a lot in that final answer. Um, I haven't heard it as much going the avenue specifically that you had, but the big thing I kind of got from that is, of course, really valuing and showing the value value and supporting clinical instructors and ultimately facilitating those academic clinical partnerships, which has been brought up um, for a long time and really been pushed for a bit to really try to bridge those two worlds and really work together. Because I'll never forget Bob Rowe when he first said this. He's like, he's like, he's like, we don't have partnerships all the time. We have relationships and we really need to move towards true partnerships. Absolutely. And I thought that was very wise and I, I couldn't agree more with what he said. So I, I appreciate that response and I think that's a really, really solid answer. That question is being addressed right this minute by a huge group of individuals. So right now, as, as you likely know, there is... Um, there are multiple task forces in place to say, how do we move to improve education for excellence in education? And um, myself and many, many others have served on a variety of, of task forces that are now bringing people together to figure this out. How do we do this? How do we do this thing better? You know, and um, from my perspective, we do it better by really. Uh, breaking down our silos. And we have got to bring together clinicians with academicians, um, with students, with patients and community members um, to, um, to create a better outcome. <laughs> and I think too often we've tried to solve challenges um, as an academy in isolation, and that's changing quickly right now. And um, in just a couple, me a couple of weeks, um, there's going to be a meeting bringing together clinicians and community members to look at what resources are needed, right, to make to improve education. So, I would say um, the word is collaboration and partnership. Um, and that's, that's where we need to focus to promote um, standardization in a move towards excellence. I appreciate that response, and I think that's a really, really solid answer. Carol, I totally recognize that people might have either questions for you regarding um, anything we've talked about simulation or any of the topics, of course, that we've dived, on, dived into this evening. Um, where can people reach out or learn more, even more about simulation? Should they want to learn more or maybe even ask a question? So um, I'm happy to have folks contact me directly. Um, if they would like, and and honestly, um, I, I if if it's okay, I'll share my. I'm happy to share my email with folks. And uh, again, my name is Carol Recker Hughes, and my email is Recker R E C K E R H for Hughes, C for Carol at Upstate.edu. And uh, if folks are at ELC again, I look forward to meeting them there. 
Well, perfect. And if you guys want as well, I mean, that link to that contact information and kind of everything we've talked about today is in the show notes. So if you're on your phone, feel free to scroll down or if you're listening to or you're viewing it through the website or the computer, feel free to just look at that site, scroll down and you will find all those links there, which are so easily available for your convenience. But Carol, I really appreciate all that you've done throughout your years to really help progress education, progress progress our profession and what you do. Uh, You've done a lot of work. You've been very busy with many initiatives and I really appreciate um, your efforts and all that you've contributed. And thank you, of course, for coming on this evening to share your insight. It's been very appreciated. Thank you so much, Brandon. Thank you, Stephanie. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.